The book is called The Improbability of Love. It tells the story of a young woman called Annie, a wannabe chef, who goes out to buy a birthday present for the man she's sleeping with but hardly knows. She doesn't have a lot of money, but she spends 75 pounds in a junk shop on a rather dirty-looking um, painting. But there's something about it that draws her in. She takes it back home, she makes the, the lover an amazing dinner, and she gets stood up. So she's left with a bruised heart and a painting. What she doesn't know about the painting is actually it's a lost masterpiece by Antoine Watteau. I'm not spoiling the plot when I tell you this. And it's a painting that many, many people, it turns out, will stop at nothing, including bankruptcy, in order to own. But unfortunately, there are others who will stop at nothing, including murder, in order to keep it all covered up and secret. She has then to go on a journey into the art world to try and work out what the mystery is behind this painting. It's a world she knows nothing about. And although the painting was painted in 1702, she's launched in the art world, the contemporary art world. And the movers and shakers of that world, of course, are oligarchs, um, they are Chinese diplomats, uh, they are American widows, uh, they are, um, you know, the, the kind of the great and the good and the very, very wealthy. But there are also other people. There are the scholars, there are the painters. So in other words, the art world is something that I was attracted to because it had so many different layers and so many different types of people. But the journey for me really started a very, very long time ago. And the book, if anything, is about my incredible love affair with art and with paintings. So when I was a child, my parents weren't particularly interested in Lego or games or anything like that. If I wanted to see my dad, I had to troop around after him and go to art galleries. And I have to say, I didn't find this much fun. And um, this one, okay, some of you might like for different reasons, but I thought it was embarrassing. Having to look at a naked woman with your father, let me tell you, is very, very embarrassing. <laughs> so I tried to look at anything apart from the naked woman. And what I noticed, of course, was the dog. Now, this is by Titian, it's Venus of Urbino. And I thought this dog was sweet, and he was talking about the paint and the brush strokes, and I was talking about the dog. And then I looked very more closely, and it looked a little bit like a dog that we once had. The next place I went to, again, he started talking about families and this and that, etc. And guess what I saw? I saw a dog. And I said, Dad, there's the same dog as in a different picture. He wasn't terribly impressed by my early attempts at art history. To my amazement, <laughs> guess what happens? I see another Titian, and there's my friend. By this point, I call it Miffy. And I hope, beyond hope, that Miffy will be able to talk to me. But funnily enough, Miffy can't talk. But I'm very, very fond of Miffy. Um, we go around Europe, me and my dad. And again, he's talking about finer brushstrokes. For example, this a wonderful picture by Piero della Francesca of the Duke of Urbino. I'm not particularly interested in him. He looks like an ugly old sod to me. But when I hear that his nose, he gouged out a bridge in his own nose when he lost one eye so that he could see 180 degrees in battle, I thought, this is the man for me. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was long dead. Meanwhile, I begin to notice that I'm not like my contemporaries. This is what they have on their walls. Some of you might remember these people. And this is what I have. <laughs> it's clear that something's going quite wrong. 
Now, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and by this point, I'm completely convinced, because of Miffy and because of the Duke of Urbino and because of Captain St. Ledger here, um, that I know a bit about art, and I spend all my pocket money on this. Now, I think I have discovered a real Rembrandt. Now, as it happens, the man in the shop told me it wasn't. He said it was actually a photocopy. I knew it was a real Rembrandt, and it cost me three weeks' wages, or three weeks' pocket money, I should say. It felt like wages sometimes. It was, of course, a photocopy. But it still hangs in, in my bathroom. I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of my early mistakes. But you'll see, as, as I go on, that all these kind of mishaps, if you like, and these passions and these foibles will actually play into my book eventually. Um, I knew, meanwhile, that these paintings spoke to me and they understood me. Thank you. They understood me. They kind of got me. When I knew when I was a teenager and I was the ugliest teenager you'd ever, ever known, there was someone else who really got it. <laughs> you think I'm joking? I'm not. She got it. She knew exactly how I was feeling. When I was more bored than anyone else ever, here it is, Ennui by Sickert, you know, this really, do you remember hours and hours staring out the window waiting for something to happen? Again, I found comfort in paintings. And when I got flu or a slight cold, there was someone else who knew just how I was feeling. <laughs> Literally, that was me. I went to Paris uh, when, in my gap year, and I had a, a really terrible job, and I still felt very ugly, and I had no friends, and I was really at a very, very low ebb. And it was a painting that saved me. And I mean this quite literally. I came face to face with this painting of Gilles by Watteau. And I saw something in this character. I saw something of someone who was displaced, someone who was lonely. There's an ass you can probably see in the background. And that's what the character, you know, Gilles thought of himself. And there are other people in the background having a nice time. Again, this was a, a painting that quite literally talked to me. And the idea both of a painting talking to one comes up in my book, because in fact, I finally get a painting to talk to me, albeit in fiction, but it does talk. And this character, this haunted, lonely figure, follows me, really. Um, I'm now not 18, as you may have gathered, but um, it still it goes into my book in a funny way. I then start to learn more about the art world, and in fact, when I went to university, I took um, various courses in art. And imagine to my delight that actually behind the pictures of course are even more interesting stories so for example this wonderful picture which is a tintoretto and it's called it's called the birth of the milky way now for a start what's rather amazing about it is this woman this woman who's lactating there's the squirt of her breast milk up to the heavens creates the milky way and the squirt of her breast milk down to the floor creates white lilies and um this picture you know, is in the National Gallery, if you want to go and see it, you probably know it already. It's very dramatic, it's very wonderful, but the thing that I really loved about it was that actually it had been, it was so prized that it had moved, it had snaked around Europe, it had become a kind of must-have trophy in many royal collections. So it goes from Italy, then it goes to Sweden, then it goes to France, then it goes back to Italy, then it goes to England, then it goes back to France. So in other words, its provenance becomes part of its story. So more and more layers added to my beloved pictures. Here's another one. Here is um, a picture supposedly by Titian called The Concert. Now, this picture was so highly valued by Charles I, who bought it from the Dukes of Mantua, that he hung it just by his bedroom in, in the Palace of Whitehall. And later on, it, 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 when he was deposed and a lot of his collection was sold off, 
This picture fetched higher and higher prices as it worked its way around Europe, collecting, I think, in the, in the 19th century, £1,000. It's a huge amount of money. Eventually, it ends up also at the National Gallery. And to my amazement, while I was a trustee there, where well, I still am a trustee there, it was demoted. Somebody decided that actually it wasn't a real Titian. And here, rather than the power of money, is the power of scholarship. And it was another very important lesson to me about art, which is that it's entirely subjective. A picture is worth nothing. It's a piece of cloth with some oil on it. And um, I'm just trying to see what time it is. Um, and, and really, the, this, the price of a work of art is about desire. It's about how much anybody wants it. And this picture, to me, really personified that. It helped me to understand that Actually, you know, we, we graft our own feelings onto paintings. We decide what they are and how valuable they are. Somebody who, who was very, very aware of what paintings were, were worth was Adolf Hitler. As you know, he was an amateur painter himself. When he um, took over as leader of the Nazi Party, leader of Germany, he wanted to set up a preeminent museum in Linz full of some of the greatest works of art in the world. And this painting, uh, Vermeer's The Astronomer, belonged to my family, my French cousins, and Hitler decided that it was top of his shopping list. He actually went on to steal 3,000 works from the family. And uh, the painting's now in the Louvre, you can go and see it. And on the back, Hitler stamped a huge, great black swastika. Uh, it was finally reunited. Now, of course, the art world isn't all about avarice and money and everything else. Here is one of my absolute heroes' pictures, Frank Auerbach. It's a woman on a blue eiderdown. Uh, funny, funny, that title, isn't it? Um, and... Frank Auerbach is a painter. He lives and has lived and worked in the same small um, studio for nearly 50 years. And he eschews money. He doesn't want anything to do with money. He takes just enough money from his dealers, the Marlborough Gallery, in order to buy the absolute basics. His paintings now go for several million pounds a pop. Um, this particular painting actually was bought by his great friend, Lucian Freud, and has just been left to the nation. Um, and I think, again, when we think about the art world, it's important not just to get lost in the myths of vast checks and um, huge egos. Actually, the art world, a lot of it, of course, are these incredible practitioners like Auerbach. Um, I, I thought at times when I was writing this novel, I'm never going to get through this. It's too much. I can't do it. You know, it's too complicated. You know, why do I think I could write a novel? You know, how arrogant, how stupid of you, bloody, bloody, blah. And again, the things that always saved me was going back to the paintings. And this one in particular, I remember going to see one afternoon when I was particularly desperate. And it's Turner, it's obviously a Turner seascape. And Turner lashed himself to the mast for four hours in order to get the right atmosphere for his picture. So again, you see, during the writing of this book, I think, well, if Turner can lash himself to the mast, I can sit in front of my computer for a little bit longer. Um, that was my, and I did eventually, of course, get there. Art dealers, another important part of the art market. Uh, they're nothing new. Today, they're called Gagosian and Sverner and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This is my hero, again, Watteau, painting one of the first great art dealers in Paris. So you have to imagine here, ladies in, in taffeta. Uh, it's exactly what you'd see now if you go down Bond Street. It's exactly the same scenes pay, uh, played out, just in different dresses. Um, and again, this was something I was fascinated by. Here, of course, is Charles I by Van Dyck, another theme what does art do for you? Now, in Charles's case, in 1632, he was a weedy little princeling. He was sent over to see Philip IV in Spain to man up. And he looked around and he thought, well, Philip IV isn't that great. But actually what he did notice is that Philip IV 
surrounded himself by great paintings, and Charles learnt something about that. So he bought a whole lot of paintings, and he got Van Dyck to come over to paint him, looking, frankly, marvellous. If you think about him, he was a snaggletooth, tiny little, you know, weedy-looking man. And, you know, here, here he is. He's a great, great commander. These are some of the things that art can do. So all these, as you can imagine... I had a lot of fun playing with these ideas in this book. Um, and this poor girl, Annie, gets kind of, you know, taken on this mad, crazy journey through this. It's very difficult now to think about the value of art without thinking about its price. In fact, it's almost impossible. Here is a painting that sold, as most of you know, um, a couple of weeks ago by Picasso, The Women of Algiers. It was bought by a... Sh uh, well, actually, it wasn't even bought by... It was a sheikh, but not a royal sheikh. He actually was a former prime minister of Qatar. I think it went for 179.3 million. And I do feel slightly depressed because I do think now that, you know, it is very difficult when I walk around the beloved National Gallery or Tate or any of those other places to divorce, really, the great power of paintings from what they fetch at auction houses. And I suppose, in some ways, the improbability of love refers to that. It refers to the fact, you know, it's the improbability of, of love in any description, but the improbability of love for paintings is something that we have to hang on to. For me, it's the impossibility of love, and I toy sometimes with renaming this book. But most of all, I really hope that I've been able to infect some of you who don't necessarily look at paintings to go and see them. Every single one of the paintings I've shown you tonight belong to you. They're in public collections in this country, apart, actually apart from the Urbino, the first one. And um, that is apart from the Picasso, which frankly isn't such a good picture anyway. Thank you very much.